Harry had chosen to assume a rather relaxed posture as he sat in a low chair before the mighty desk of the headmaster of Hogwarts. One leg cocked over his knee, and his arms sprawled casually to either side. Harry was doing his best to disregard the noise from the surrounding devices, although the one directly behind him that sounded like an owl hooting desperately as it was put through a wood chipper was pretty difficult to ignore. Harry, the old wizard said from behind the desk, the aged voice level as the blue eyes stared out at him from beneath the shining half-moon spectacles. Headmaster Dumbledore had garbed himself in robes of midnight purple, not true formal black, but dark enough to come close indeed to deadly serious, as the wizarding world counted in the meaning of fashions. Were you responsible for this? I cannot deny that my influence was at work, Harry said. The old wizard took off his glasses, leaned forward to stare at Harry directly, blue eyes to green. I will ask you one question, the headmaster said in a quiet voice. Do you think that what you did today was appropriate? They were bullies, and they came to that hallway with the direct intent of hurting Hermione Granger and seven other first-year children, Harry said levelly. If I'm not too young for moral judgment, then neither are they. No, Headmaster, they didn't deserve to die, but they did deserve to be stripped naked and glued to the ceiling. The old wizard put his glasses back on. For the first time that Harry had seen of him, the headmaster seemed to be at a loss for words. As Merlin himself is my witness, said Dumbledore, I haven't the faintest notion of how I ought to react to this. Uh, that's pretty much the effect I was aiming for, said Harry. He felt like he ought to be whistling a merry tune, but unfortunately he had never learned how to whistle reliably. I need not ask you who is directly responsible, said the headmaster. Only three wizards within Hogwarts might be powerful enough. I myself did not do it. Severus has assured me he was not involved. And the third... The headmaster shook his head in some dismay. You loaned the defense professor your cloak, Harry. I do not think that was wise, for now that he has escaped detection by simple charms, he surely knows that it is a deathly hallow. If, indeed, he did not know from its first touch upon his flesh. Professor Quirrell had already deduced my possession of an invisibility cloak, Harry said, and knowing him, he has probably guessed that it's a deathly hallow. But 
In this case, Headmaster, it so happens that Professor Quirrell was under one of those face-concealing white robes. There was another pause. How very cunning, said the Headmaster. He leaned back in his throne and sighed. I have spoken to the defense professor, just before you, indeed. I did not quite know what to say. I told him that this was not the approved Hogwarts policy for dealing with infractions of hallway discipline, and that I did not feel it was appropriate for a Hogwarts professor to do what he had done. And what did Professor Quirrell say to that? said Harry, who was not impressed with Hogwarts' current policies for enforcing hallway discipline. The headmaster wore a look of resignation. He said, fire me. Somehow, Harry managed not to cheer out loud. The headmaster frowned. But why did he do it, Harry? Because Professor Quirrell doesn't like school bullies, and I asked very politely, said Harry. And he was feeling bored, and I thought this might cheer him up. Either that, or it's part of some incredibly deep plot. The headmaster rose up from behind the desk began to pace back and forth before the hat-stand that held the sorting hat and the red slippers. Harry, do you not feel that all of this has gotten a bit... Awesome, offered Harry. Utterly and completely out of hand would say it better, said Dumbledore. I'm not sure there has ever been a time in the whole history of this school when things have become so... So... I don't have a word for this, Harry, because things have never become like this before, and so no one has ever needed to invent a word for it. Harry would have tried to invent words to express how deeply complimented he felt if he hadn't been snarkling too hard to speak. The headmaster was regarding him with increasing graveness. Harry, do you understand at all why I find these events concerning? Honestly, said Harry, no, not really. I mean, of course, Professor McGonagall would object to anything that breaks up the dull monotony of the Hogwarts school experience, but then Professor McGonagall wouldn't set a chicken on fire. The frown lines deepened on Dumbledore's wrinkled face. That, Harry, is not what disturbs me, the headmaster said quietly. There was a full battle fought in these halls. Headmaster, Harry said, trying to keep his voice carefully respectful. Professor Quirrell and I didn't choose for that battle to happen. Uh, The bullies did that. 
we just decided to have the light side win. I know there are times where the boundaries of morality are uncertain, but in this case, the line separating the villains and the heroines was twenty meters tall and drawn in white fire. Our intervention may have been weird, but it certainly wasn't wrong. Dumbledore had gone back to his desk, sat down in his padded throne with a dull thump, and was now covering his face with both his hands. Am I missing something here? Harry said. I thought you'd be secretly on our side, Headmaster. It was the Gryffindor thing to do. The Weasley twins would approve. Forks would approve. Harry glanced at the golden perch, but it was empty. Either the phoenix had more important things to do, or the headmaster hadn't invited him to today's meeting. That, said the headmaster in an old and tired and somewhat muffled voice, is precisely the problem, Harry. There is a reason why courageous young heroes are not put in charge of schools. All right, Harry said. He couldn't quite keep the scepticism out of his voice. What am I missing this time? The old wizard lifted his head, his face now solemn and calmer. Listen, Harry, said Dumbledore. Hear me well, for all who wield power must learn this in time. Some things in this world are indeed truly simple. If you pick up a stone and drop it again, the earth will be no heavier for it. The stars will not move from their paths. I say this, Harry, so that you know I am not pretending to be wise when I tell you that even as some things are simple, others are complex. There are greater wizardries which leave marks upon the world, and marks upon those who wield them, as a simple charm would not. Those wizardries demand hesitation, consideration of consequence, a moment to weigh the meaning of their marks. And yet, the most intricate magics known to me are simpler than the simplest soul. People, Harry, people are always marked by what they do and by what is done to them. Do you, then, Understand how to say, Here is the line between hero and villain. It's not enough to say that what you did was right. Headmaster, Harry said evenly, This is not a decision I made at random. No, I don't know what exact effect this will have on every single one of the bullies present, 
But if I always waited for perfect information before I acted, I'd never do anything. When it comes to the future psychological development of, say, Peregrine Derrick, beating up eight first-year girls probably wouldn't have been good for him. And it wasn't enough to just stop them quietly and quickly, since then they would just try again later. They had to see that there was a protective power worth fearing. Harry's voice stayed level. But, of course, since I am a good guy, I didn't want to permanently injure them or even cause them any pain, and yet the penalty had to be enough to weigh on the minds of anyone thinking about trying it again. So, after weighing the expected outcomes as best I could with my boundedly rational intellect, I thought it would be wisest to strip the bullies naked and glue them to the ceiling. The young hero stared directly into the old wizard's gaze, unflinching green eyes locked with the blue behind the spectacles. And since I wasn't there and didn't do anything personally, there's no lawful way to punish me under the Hogwarts school rules. The only one who acted was Professor Quirrell, and he's fireproof. And just breaking the rules to get at me wouldn't be a wise thing to do to the hero you're grooming to fight Lord Voldemort. This time, Harry actually had tried to think through all the ramifications in advance, before he made the suggestion to Professor Quirrell, and for once, the defence professor hadn't called him a fool, just slowly smiled, and then began to laugh. I understand your intentions, Harry, the old wizard said. You think you have taught the bullies of Hogwarts a lesson, but if Peregrine Derrick could learn that lesson, he would not be Peregrine Derrick. He will only be provoked more by what you do. It is not fair. It is not right. But that is the way of it. The old wizard closed his eyes, as though in brief pain, and then opened them again. Harry, the most painful truth any hero must learn is that the right cannot, should not, must not win every battle. All of this began when Miss Granger fought three older enemies and won. If she had been content with this, the echoes of her deed would have died away in time. Yet, instead, she banded together with her classmates and raised her wand in open challenge to Peregrine Derrick and all his kind. And his kind cannot but raise their own wands in answer. So Jamie Astorga went hunting her, and in the natural course he would have beaten her. It would have been a sad day but it would have ended there. There is not enough magic in eight first-year witches altogether to defeat such a foe. But you could not accept that, Harry. Could not let Miss Granger learn her own lessons. 
And so you sent the defense professor to watch over them invisibly and pierce Astorga's shield when Daphne Greengrass struck at him. What? thought Harry. The old wizard went on speaking. Each time you intervened, Harry, it escalated matters further and yet further. Soon, Miss Granger was facing Robert Chugson himself, the son of a Death Eater, with two strong allies at his side. Painful indeed it would have been for her if Miss Granger had lost that battle. And yet again, by your will and Quirinus's hand, this time shown more openly, she won. Harry was still struggling with the notion of the defense professor watching invisibly over Spew, guarding the heroines from harm. And so, the old wizard finished, that is how we came to today, Harry, to forty-four students attacking eight first-year witches, a full battle in these halls. I know it was not your intent, but you must accept some measure of responsibility. Such things did not happen before you came to this school, not through all my decades in Hogwarts, neither when I was a student, nor when I was a professor. Thank you very much, Harry said evenly. Though, uh, I think Professor Quirrell deserves more credit than me. The blue eyes widened. Harry! Those bullies were attacking victims long before this year, Harry said. Despite his best efforts, his voice was starting to rise. But nobody seems to have taught the students that they're allowed to fight back. I know it's much harder to ignore a two-sided fight than some helpless victims getting hexed or almost pushed out of windows, but it's not exactly worse, is it? I wish I'd read more of Godric Gryffindor's writing so I could quote him. There's got to be something in there about this. Open battle may be louder than the victims suffering in silence. It may be harder to pretend that nothing's happening, but the final result is better. No, it is not, Dumbledore said. It is not, Harry, to always fight the darkness, to never let evil pass unchallenged. That is not heroism, but simple pride. Even Godric Gryffindor did not think that every war was worth fighting, though he went his whole life from one battle to another. The old wizard's voice went quieter. In truth, Harry, the words you speak are not evil. No, not evil. And yet they have frightened me. You are one who might someday wield great power over wizardry, over your fellow wizards. 
And if, come that day, you still think evil must never pass unchallenged. Now a note of real worry had entered the headmaster's voice. The world has grown more fragile since the age when Hogwarts was raised. I fear it cannot bear the fury of another Godric Gryffindor. And he was slower to his wrath than you. The old wizard shook his head. You are too ready to fight, Harry. Much too ready to fight. And Hogwarts itself is becoming a more violent place around you. Well, Harry said carefully after weighing his words, I don't know if it will help to say this, but I think you're getting the wrong impression of what I'm all about. I don't like real fighting either. It's scary and violent and somebody might get hurt. But I didn't fight today, Headmaster. The Headmaster frowned. You sent the defense professor in your place. Professor Quirrell didn't do any fighting either, Harry said calmly. There wasn't anyone there strong enough to fight him. What happened today wasn't fighting. It was winning. It was a while then before the old wizard spoke. That may be as it may be, the headmaster said. But all these conflicts must end. I can hear the strain in the air, and with each of these clashes it rises. All this must end decisively, and soon... You must not stand in the way of its ending. The old wizard gestured toward the great oaken door of his office, and Harry departed through it. It was with some surprise that Harry stepped out from between the huge grey gargoyles which had made way for him, and saw that Quirinus Quirrell was still slumped against the stone of the corridor wall, a thick thread of spittle drooling from his slack mouth onto his professorial robes, in just the same position he'd occupied when Harry had first gone up into the headmaster's office. Harry waited, but the slumped man didn't rise up, and after long, awkward seconds, Harry began to walk down the corridor again. Mr. Potter came a soft call after Harry had turned two corners, a quiet voice carrying unnaturally through the halls. When Harry had returned, he found Professor Quirrell still slumped against the wall, but the pale eyes now watched him with keen intelligence. I'm sorry to have tired you out. It was something that Harry couldn't say, He'd noticed the correlation between the effort Professor Quirrell expended and the time he had to spend... resting. But Harry had reasoned that if the effort was too painful or detrimental, surely Professor Quirrell would just say no. Now Harry was wondering if that reasoning had actually been correct. And if not, 
how to apologize. The defense professor spoke in a quiet voice, the rest of the body unmoving. How went your meeting with the headmaster, Mr. Potter? I'm not sure, Harry said. Not the way I predicted. He seems to believe the light should lose a lot more often than I'd consider wise. Plus, I'm not sure he understands the difference between trying to fight and trying to win. It explains a lot, actually. Harry hadn't read much about the Wizarding War, but he'd read enough to know that the good guys probably had acquired a pretty accurate picture of who most of the worst Death Eaters were, and hadn't just owled them all hand grenades over the course of five minutes. A soft, soft laugh from the pale lips. <laughs> Dumbledore does not comprehend the enjoyment of winning just as he does not comprehend the enjoyment of the game. Tell me, Mr. Potter, did you suggest this little plan with the deliberate intention of relieving my tedium? That was among my many motives, Harry said, because some instinct had warned that he couldn't just say yes. Do you know, the defense professor said in soft, reflective tones, there are those who have tried to soften my darker moods, and those who have indeed participated in brightening my day. But you are the first person ever to succeed in doing it deliberately. The defense professor seemed to straighten up from the wall with a peculiar motion which might have included magic as well as muscle. And the defense professor began to walk away without a look back in Harry's direction. Only a small gesture of one finger indicated that Harry was to follow. I particularly enjoyed that chant you composed for Miss Davis said Professor Quirrell after they had walked a short distance. Though you might have been wiser to consult me in advance before giving it to her to memorize. One hand bestirred itself to within the defense professor's robes and drew forth a wand which traced a small gesture in the air, after which all the faraway sounds of the castle Hogwarts fell silent. Tell me honestly, Mr. Potter, have you somehow acquired a familiarity with the theory of dark rituals? That is not the same as confessing an intent to cast them. Many wizards know the principles. No, Harry said slowly. He had decided some time ago against trying to sneak into the restricted section of the Hogwarts library, for much the same reason he'd decided a year earlier not to look up how to make explosives out of common household materials. Harry prided himself on at least having more sense than people thought he did. Oh, said Professor Quirrell, 
The man was walking more normally now, and the lips curved about in a peculiar smile. Why, perhaps you possess a natural talent for the field, then? Yes, well, Harry said wearily, I suppose Dr. Zeus also had a natural talent for dark rituals, because the part about shuffle-duffle-muzzle-muff came from a children's book called Bartholomew and the Ublek. Not that part, said Professor Quirrell. His voice grew a little stronger, it took on some of its normal lecturing tone. An ordinary charm. Mr. Potter, can be cast merely by speaking certain words, making precise motions of the wand, expending some of your own strength. Even powerful spells may be invoked in this way, if the magic is efficient as well as efficacious. But with the greatest of magics, speech alone does not suffice to give them structure, you must perform specific actions, make significant choices. Nor is the temporary expenditure of your own strength sufficient to set them in motion. A ritual requires permanent sacrifice. The power of such a greater spell, compared to ordinary charms, can be like day compared to night. But many rituals, indeed most, happen to demand at least one sacrifice which might inspire squeamishness. And so the entire field of ritual magic, containing all the furthest and most interesting reaches of wizardry, is widely regarded as dark, with a few exceptions carved out by tradition, of course. Professor Quirrell's voice took on a sardonic tinge. The unbreakable vow is too useful to certain wealthy houses to be outlawed entirely. Even though to bind a man's will through all his days is indeed a dread and terrible act, more fearsome than many lesser rituals that wizards shun. A cynic might conclude that which rituals are prohibited is not so much a matter of morality as habit. But I digress. Professor Quirrell made a brief coughing sound, a clearing of his throat. The unbreakable vow requires three participants and three sacrifices. The one who receives the unbreakable vow must be the one who could have come to trust the vower, but chooses instead to demand the vow from them, and they sacrifice that possibility of trust. The one who makes the vow must be someone who could have chosen to do what the vow demands of them, and they sacrifice that capacity for choice. And the third wizard, the binder, permanently sacrifices a small portion of their own magic to sustain the vow forever. Ah, Harry said, 
I'd wondered why that spell wasn't used all over the place every time two people have difficulty trusting each other. Although, why don't wizards on their deathbeds charge money to bind unbreakable vows and use that to leave an inheritance for their children? Because they are stupid, said Professor Quirrell. There are hundreds of useful rituals which could be performed if men had so much sense. I could name twenty without stopping to draw breath. But in any case, Mr. Potter, the thing about such rituals, whether or not you choose to term them dark, is that they are shaped to be magically efficacious, not to appear impressive when performed. I suppose there is a certain tendency for the more powerful rituals to require more dreadful sacrifices. Even so, the most terrible ritual known to me demands only a rope which has hanged a man and a sword which has slain a woman. And that for a ritual which promised to summon death itself. Though what is truly meant by that I do not know and do not care to discover, since it was also said that the counterspell to dismiss death had been lost. The most dread chant I have encountered does not sound even as hundredth as fearsome as the chant you composed for Miss Davis. Those among the bullies, who had a passing familiarity with dark rituals, and I am certain that there were some, must have been terrified beyond the capacity of words to describe. If there existed a true ritual which appeared that impressive, Mr. Potter, it would melt the earth. Um, said Harry. Professor Quirrell's lips twisted further. Ah, but the truly amusing thing was this. You see, Mr. Potter, the chant of every ritual names that which is to be sacrificed and that which is to be gained. The chant which you gave to Miss Davis spoke first of a darkness beyond darkness, buried beneath the flow of time, which knows the gate and is the gate. And the second thing spoken of, Mr. Potter, was the manifestation of your own presence. And always, in each element of the ritual, First is named that which is sacrificed, and then is said the use commanded of it. I see, said Harry as he trod through the halls of Hogwarts after Professor Quirrell, following him toward the defence professor's office. So, my chant, the way I wrote it, implies that the outer god Yogsothoth was permanently sacrificed in a ritual which but briefly manifested your presence, said Professor Quirrell. 
I suppose we will discover tomorrow whether anyone took that seriously, when we read the newspapers and see whether all the magical nations of the world are banding together in a desperate effort to seal off your incursion into our reality. They walked on as the defense professor began chuckling. Odd, throaty sounds. The two of them didn't talk after that until they came to the defense professor's office, and then the man halted with his hand upon the door. It is a very strange thing, the defense professor said, his voice now soft again, almost inaudible. The man was not looking at Harry, and Harry saw only his back. A very strange thing. There was a time when I would have sacrificed a finger from my wand hand to work upon the bullies of Hogwarts as we have worked upon them this day, to make them fear me as they now fear you, to have the deference of all the students and the adoration of many. I would have given my finger for that. You have everything now that I wanted then. All that I know of human nature says that I should hate you. And yet, I do not. It is a very strange thing. It should have been a touching moment, but instead Harry felt a coldness travelling down his spine, as though he were a little fish in the sea, and some vast white shark had just looked him over and decided after a visible hesitation not to eat him. The man opened the door to the defence professor's office, and passed within, and was gone. Aftermath Her fellow Slytherins were looking at Daphne like... Like they didn't have the faintest idea of how to look at her. The Gryffindors were looking at her like they didn't have the faintest idea of how to look at her. Showing no fear, Daphne Greengrass strode into the potions classroom, wrapped in the imperious dignity of a noble and most ancient house, Inside, she was feeling much the same way everyone else probably did. It had been two hours since the What? When the What? had happened, and Daphne's brain was still going What? 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 The classroom was quiet as they all waited for Professor Snape to arrive. Lavender and Pavati sat near a cluster of other Gryffindors, surrounded by silent stares. The two of them were looking over each other's homework before class started, and nobody else was helping them or talking to them. Even Lavender, who Daphne would have sworn could never be fazed by anything, seemed subdued. Daphne sat down at her desk and took magical draughts and potions out of her bag, and began looking over her own homework, 
doing her very best to act normal. People stared at her and said nothing. A gasp went through the whole classroom. Girls and boys flinched back, leaning away from the door like they were stalks of wheat touched by a gust of wind. In the door stood Tracy Davis, wrapped in a black tattered cloak which had been draped over her Hogwarts uniform. Tracy walked slowly into the classroom, swaying slightly with each step, looking like she was trying to drift. She sat down at her accustomed desk, which happened to be right next to Daphne's. See? the Slytherin girl said in a low, sepulchral tone. I told you I'd get him before she did. What? blurted Daphne, who immediately wished she hadn't said anything. I got Harry Potter before Granger did. Tracy's voice was still low, but her eyes were gleaming with triumph. See, Daphne, what General Potter wants in a girl isn't a pretty face or a pretty dress. He wants a girl willing to channel his dread powers. That's what he wants. Now I'm his, and he's mine. This announcement produced a frozen silence through the whole classroom. Excuse me, Miss Davis, said the cultured voice of Draco Malfoy, who seemed unconcerned as he shuffled through his own potions parchment. The other scion of a most ancient house didn't so much as glance up from his desk, even as everyone else turned to look at him. Did Harry Potter actually tell you that, using those words? Well, no, Tracy said, and then her eyes flashed angrily. But he'd better take me in now that I've sacrificed my soul to him and everything. You sacrificed your soul to Harry Potter? gasped Millicent. There was a clatter from the other side of the room as Ron Weasley dropped his inkwell. Well, I'm pretty sure I did, said Tracy, sounding briefly uncertain before she rallied. I mean, I looked at myself in a mirror, and I look paler now, and I can always feel darkness surrounding me, and I was a conduit for his dread powers and everything. Daphne, you also saw my eyes go green, right? I didn't see it myself, but that's what I heard afterward. There was a pause, broken only by the sounds of Ron Weasley trying to clean up his desk. Daphne, said Tracy. I don't believe it, said an angry voice. There's no way the next Dark Lord would take you to be his bride. Slowly, and with considerable disbelief, heads turned to stare at Pansy Parkinson. Hush you! said Tracy. Or oil. The Slytherin girl paused, 
Then Tracy's voice went even lower, and she said, Hush, you, or I'll devour your soul. You can't do that, said Pansy, in the confident tones of a hen which had worked out a perfectly good pecking order where she was at the top, and wasn't about to go updating that belief based on mere evidence. Slowly, like she was trying to float, Tracy got up from her desk. There were more gasps. Daphne felt like she had been petrified in place within her chair. Tracy, said Lavender in a small voice, please don't do all that again. Please. Now Pansy was showing definite nervousness as Tracy swayed toward her desk. What do you think you're doing? Pansy said, not quite managing to sound indignant. I told you, Tracy said menacingly. I'm going to devour your soul. Tracy bent down over Pansy, who sat frozen at her desk, and, with their lips almost touching, made a loud inhaling noise. There, said Tracy as she straightened. I ate your soul. No, you didn't, said Pansy. Did too, said Tracy. There was a very slight pause. Merlin, she did, cried Theodore Not. You look all pale now, and your eyes seem empty. What? screeched Pansy, turning pale. The girl leapt up from her desk and began frantically rummaging through her book bag. After Pansy drew out a mirror and looked at herself, she turned even paler. Daphne abandoned all pretense of aristocratic poise and let her head fall to the desk with a dull thud, as she wondered whether going to the same school as all the other important families was really worth going to the same school as the Chaos Legion. Oh, you're in trouble now, Pansy, said Seamus Finnegan. I don't know exactly what happens when a Dementor kisses you, but if Tracy Davis kisses you, that's probably even worse. Oh, I've heard about people without souls. Dean Thomas said gloomily. They have to dress all in black, and they write awful poetry, and nothing ever makes them happy. They're all angsty. I don't want to be angsty, cried Pansy. Too bad, said Dean Thomas. You've got to be now that your soul's gone. Pansy turned and stretched out a begging hand toward Draco Malfoy's desk. Draco? She said pleadingly. Mr. Malfoy, please make Tracy give me back my soul. I can't, said Tracy. I ate it. Make her throw it up, yelled Pansy. 
The heir of Malfoy had slumped forward, resting his head in both hands so that nobody could see his face. Why is my life like this? said Draco Malfoy. A wild babble of whispers started up as Tracy returned to her desk, now smiling in satisfaction, while Pansy stood in the midst of the classroom, wringing her hands and tears starting from her eyes. Be quiet, the soft, lethal voice seemed to fill the whole classroom as Professor Snape stalked in through the door. His face was angrier than Daphne had ever seen it, sending a jolt of genuine fear down her spine. Hastily, she looked down at her homework. Sit down, Parkinson, the potions master hissed. And you, Davis, take off that ridiculous cloak. Professor Snape! wailed Pansy Parkinson in tears. Tracy ate my soul!